Interestingly, we've been talking a bit about remission in severe asthma because the impact of biologics can be really very large if you, you give them to the right patient. And we would, of course, like to give biologics to the right patient, to more of the right patients. And one way that we've been trying to get there is to talk about grandiose outcome measures like remission. You are listening to Treatable Traits on Asthma. This series is intended for healthcare professionals that are interested in being updated within asthma. You will be updated according to available science and the speaker's clinical experiences. Take time to subscribe for this podcast on the channel you're using so you don't miss out on new episodes. Welcome to the next episode in the podcast about treatable traits. Today we will discuss treatable traits and risk factors. My name is Professor Vibeke Bagger. I'm professor at the main university hospital Rigshospitalet, Copenhagen University Hospital in Denmark. Welcome to Ian Pevor from UK and Peter Gibson from Australia. And I would like to start with uh, asking you, Peter, what about asthma and tobacco consumption? Sure. So this is a real problem. It's a problem in in several different ways. So tobacco consumption is very prevalent in many parts of the world. In our country, Australia, we've been successful in reducing it. So it's it's going down, thankfully. But there are still many parts of the world where there's excessive tobacco consumption. And it's associated with asthma in a number of different ways. Um It's a risk factor for developing asthma. If you have asthma and you're a smoker, you're at risk of the problems of smoking itself, which is mucus hypersecretion, airflow obstruction, emphysema, as well as cardiovascular disease. But it also appears to change the response to normal asthma treatments. So people who are smokers and have asthma don't respond to many asthma treatments in the same way. They don't respond to inhaled steroids, for example. And interestingly, um, the group who are tested for macrolides, that there's a less of a response or no response to macrolides. So it has wide-ranging effects on asthma and other risk factors for other conditions. And then I would like to ask you another question concerning exercise. What do you do with your asthma patient concerning uh, physical activity? Yeah, so this is an area that we've uh, started to more actively try and understand and incorporate into the service that we offer. And we're looking at two things here. One is physical activity, what exercise can the person do, but also the amount of sedentary behavior, how much sitting are they doing. And what we're finding is that uh, there might be a natural reluctance or a problem with doing high-level physical activity, but many people can increase their total minutes of light to moderate physical activity and also reduce their sedentary behavior. So less sitting, being being more active, walking around and standing. So they're the two things that we focus on. Um, we looked to our pulmonary rehabilitation program 
to, to provide for patients with severe asthma and a structured exercise program. And we're conducting some research to try and design um, interventions that might be suitable for people with asthma to address both physical activity, but also excessive sedentary behaviour. I'd be interested in your experience with this, Vibika, because I know you've uh, done a lot of work in this area. My experience is that, firstly, Danes have to, by in general, bike a lot. So most Danes are actually biking back and forth to their job. So by that, they have a less sedentary lifestyle than in many other countries. But then looking at the asthma patients, they still seems to have a more sedentary lifestyle than ordinary uh, healthy public. And we have developed two studies. We have looked at physical training, high-intensity physical training. And firstly, we looked at, is it uh, feasible to have asthma patients to do uh, spinning uh, with high intensity? And it was. And then uh, we trained them for eight weeks to see whether they got better asthma control after eight weeks. And what we showed is that exercise, high-intensity training three times a week do make your asthma better controlled without changing anything else. Following that uh, study, we uh, designed a study where we would like to downtitrate the steroids because, I mean, if you have better asthma control, you would need less treatment. So we downtitrate uh, asthma treatment over half a year where we had, it was a randomized control study as well, where... Uh, they had exercise training three times a week with high intensity. And we found out that if they, do, if they participated twice or three times a week, they got better asthma control and we could reduce their steroids significantly. If they only came to the training once a week, it was not enough. Um, and what we also found that that's quite interesting uh, because when they were in the program for half a year, we called them if they um, if they were not adherent and uh, kind of pushed them to come. We opened Saturdays and Sundays and and um, we had a great uh, success rate in participating in two or three times a week. But if we looked at 12-month follow-up and we stopped pushing them for the last six months, they continued being uh, active and we could reduce their steroids even further. So, I mean, physical activity, you get better asthma control. If you do so, you have to do it at least twice a week and you have to have it like uh, in high intensity. We haven't um, made research into low intensity, but it seems as high intensity is good for the patient and uh, it's feasible. And in obesity, that's another risk factor in, in asthma. Is this something we should... Um, do something about? Yeah, so obesity is in my top five um, treatable traits. Peter's just talked about smoking, which drives a, a number of issues. It increases the uh, 
symptoms. It probably causes progressive loss of lung function over time, and it's a risk factor for attack. So smoking is, is a real key treatable trait. But obesity is particularly associated with uh, poor symptom control. Um, and interestingly, we've been talking a bit about remission in severe asthma because the impact of biologics can be really very large if you, you give them to the right patient. And we would, of course, like to give biologics to the right patient, to more of the right patients. And one way that we've been trying to get there is to talk about grandiose outcome measures like remission. But I, I was looking at an analysis recently with one of the biologics, looking at how many patients achieve remission. And it, it was about you know, between 20 and 30%. But if they removed those patients with a BMI above 30, the proportion achieving remission went up to between 50 and 60%. So it doubled. And, you know, one of the main reasons we can't achieve good outcomes in severe asthma is because of this comorbid condition, obesity. The next question is why, why are they obese? And, and one concern is that we're, we're making it worse or, or uh, aggravating it by our treatments. You know, high dose inhaled steroids and regular oral corticosteroids both have the potential to increase uh, appetite and weight. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's really... And, and the, the third point with obesity is it's very very easy to recognise, you know, so you don't need a biomarker. You can... Well, I suppose you do. You need to weigh the patient. But And finally, it's becoming a treatable issue. And, you know, we all read the New England Journal and every week now there's a new treatment that that's causing 30% reduction in body mass index over over sort of... 12 months. Uh, so this is becoming a very treatable problem. So yeah, obesity is quite high on my list of um, extra pulmonary treatable traits. Peter, do you use uh, any medication for treating the obesity or is it only diet? So I don't prescribe it personally, but I would refer a person patient to a another specialist in that area. Then pregnancy, Peter, that's a risk factor as well. Uh, is it only uh, uh, mild or is it severe asthma in pregnancy or how do you reckon? So, yeah, as asthma in pregnancy is interesting. It's, asthma is probably the most common medical condition that uh, co-occurs with pregnancy. So, so it's very common for, you know, in Australia, it's about uh, one in 10 or t women who are pregnant will have coexisting asthma, the same as the normal population. And there've long been observations made by clinicians and patients that asthma can change throughout pregnancy, which is true. And you can see people who improve or uh, who uh, whose asthma gets worse during pregnancy, but what what often is not appreciated is that the re exacerbation risk remains, and we find that um, exacerbation risk is actually quite high in pregnancy. So at least fifty percent, so at least half of women with asthma who are pregnant um, will be at risk of an exacerbation. So it's important 
to think about that risk and look at what can be done to minimise it um, and achieve good asthma control during pregnancy. And we find treatable traits really helpful approach there because there are many reasons why a, a woman with asthma might have symptoms that could be asthma or they might be something else. And treatable traits helps you tease out what they what they are and offer effective treatment. Adherence, for example. Adherence, yep. Uh, but uh, rising BMI, esophageal reflux, uh, worsening rhinitis, uh, they're, they're common things that occur during pregnancy. Ian, do you take uh, responsibility for asthma in, in pregnant women or is it uh, done on a separate hospital? Yeah, so we we have a we work very closely with the um, the obstetric physicians who take primary responsibility. Where we get involved is pregnancy and patients on biologics, and this is a, a bit of a uh, a topical area because a rising number of patients that are on biologics for uh, asthma, and uh, you know some are getting pregnant. I have a, a theory, it's only a theory, that um, poorly controlled eosinophilic asthma is associated with subfertility and that when you tr control it with um, biologic treatment, patients become more likely to get pregnant. Um, and then they ask, well, should I stop the biologic? Should I continue the biologic? You know, what, what's your approach? And And here we have, this is a relatively evidence-free zone. Um, we, we do have reassuring animal data and the limited post-treatment um, surveillance data, perhaps less limited for the anti-IgE, which has been around for a while, is generally very reassuring. So my approach, and I'm interested in hearing your views on this, uh, is to carry on with the biologic, because I think poor... Asthma control during pregnancy, as Peter's work has shown very convincingly, poor asthma control during pregnancy is a real big risk factor for poor pregnancy outcomes. So I, I tend to carry on with treatment. I mean, obviously you have a dialogue and a discussion with the patient, but that that's generally my view. Yeah. My view is that the only drug, uh, the anti-IGE, um, which is um, published concerning the side effects during pregnancy um, is that it is uh, well to use. You can use it without any problems. There's no data concerning all the other ones. So my belief and what I will do in the chronic rhinosinusitis clinic is that if I have a patient there, I'll shift it into anti-IGE. I'd be interested, Vibika, on what you have to say about asthma and fertility. Uh, there's a uh, uh, the time to pregnancy is in enlarged in patients with asthma, especially asthma patients less than 35 years of age, and um, it's around two years. It's enlarged. We are looking into whether you could treat the patients with anti-IDE to decrease that time to pregnancy. We do not have the results yet, but uh, it will come in a year or so uh, that we will have this knowledge. And the the 
anti-IgE have both anti-IgE uh, uh, effect, but it also have an anti-inflammatory effect, and that's what we are working for with the with the with the study. So hopefully there will come some data. Yeah, it's a really important area, isn't it? It's it's common. Uh, it's so important to to mothers, but also to to their children. And we, it's an area where I think we have to keep an active presence and an act, active monitoring of um, pregnant women and offering them the best care for their asthma during pregnancy. And also telling them that the number of kids born by asthmatic females are the same as uh, non-asthmatics, but the uh, number of uh, abortions are higher. So they kind of have more abortions, but the, in the end, they have the same number of children. So it takes longer time, but they will uh, be able to have babies. I, I thought your, um, your study of biomarker-directed management in pregnancy, the Powell paper, it's more than 10 years ago now, but that, that was really compelling because uh, and what was most compelling was the better pregnancy outcomes that were achieved in uh, biomarker-directed management. And uh, and I think you've even gone back to the babies, uh, you know, aged four or five. Is that is that right? That, uh, and shown that they're in better health? Yeah. The, ba the babies born from the pregnancies, from the, the mothers um, in that trial, they had less bronchiolitis. So frequent bronchiolitis was a risk factor for future asthma, and they had less of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the it's, I think it's slightly more complex. We're probably not able to def definitively extend it to uh, perinatal outcomes. But I think the asthma outcomes are clear in that biomarker directed therapy was superior to step therapy, uh, and that that paper showed that very clearly. Yeah, and there's a particular issue there with step therapy in that your symptoms become much more disconnected from type 2 airway inflammation. Uh, in part, they're related to the factors you mentioned earlier, which is, uh, you know, an increasingly uh, increasing BMI, increasing diaphragmatic splinting and, you know, gastroesophageal reflux, etc. So I think that the Powell study was a really important and really clever study, actually. Peter, in our country, we use some uh, oral steroids, but what about in your country? Yeah, so we've recently looked at this um, using prescription data, and we were alarmed at the amount of short-course oral steroid that's being used for respiratory problems. And that's things like asthma, uh, rhinosinusitis and polyps. Uh, we think it's excessive, and when you link that up to the, the work that's been done showing that it's cumulative lifetime oral steroid dose that's a real problem, you then start to see quite an alarming picture. And, and, and that is that many people are, are crossing the threshold where they are at risk of significant side effects from cumulative lifetime oral steroid use. 
And these are not just the simple side effects that we know about, like osteoporosis, but there's many other things, uh, diabetes, depression, uh, sepsis, in increased um, clotting disorders, a wide range of conditions that cumulative oral steroid toxicity can, can contribute to. So I do think we have a big problem on our hands. Fortunately, I think we now have the tools to deal with it. Uh, and those tools are targeted therapies and treatable traits is a key part of that. Could you, uh, could you merge the use of steroids with the diagnosis of disease? Like, was it the asthma patient who were taking it or was it the chronic rhinosinusitis? Uh, so in that study, it was predominant. Well, it was it was being we thought it was being used for asthma. So we we but we couldn't differentiate the primary purpose. Okay, because uh, what I have found out going into a new area is that uh, the use of steroids, oral steroids in Denmark, are not that high. We tend to use more uh, higher dosage of inhaled steroids. That might be better, but it's still high dosage and it's still steroids. But what I found out in the new area was that um, the patient taking care of chronic rhinosinusitis, they are pushed by the patients because the patients, their, their main complaint is loss of smell. And they can't see the, um, the Christmas coming on without being able to smell the food. And therefore, they often get the uh, steroids uh, in December. And similarly, uh, in the northern European area, we have summertime in June, July. And there, before going on vacation, they tend to have another shot or another cure. So I hopefully that will change now that the biologics have been a uh, possibility. Yes, we have a similar experience in that patients definitely experience benefits from short-course oral steroids. So for asthma, they can be life-saving. And that's really been the focus um, up until now. But we need to, I think, educate people about the, the cumulative risks. And we haven't done that previously in a systematic way. Now's a good time to do it, as you say, because we've got tools to offer patients the benefit of steroids, but with minimizing the toxicity and biologics and treatable traits are the, are the, the ways of, of bringing that change about. Last topic is uh, just in short, uh, adherence. Is it a problem or is it not a problem? Well, it's a huge problem. Um, in clinical care. So our adherence rates with inhaled steroids are shocking in all countries, I think, where it's been looked at. Um, are worse than adherence rates with antihypertensives and cholesterol-lowering drugs that actually make you feel ill, uh, whereas inhaled steroids make you feel better. So uh, we have a problem. We tend to blame patients, don't we, for poor adherence. But I think the problem is that we're handing these drugs out in a very untargeted way and they're getting a bad reputation. 
And that if we adopted a treatable trait approach and we said, look, I've done a measurement here which tells me two things. Firstly, if you don't use an inhaled steroid, you are on average uh, going to be at higher risk of bad outcomes like asthma attacks. And the second thing this measurement tells me that is if you choose to take this brown inhaler, you're going to have a really good response. Now, if we had that conversation with the patient, would they make better treatment decisions? I think they would. Um, it's a research question. You know, does treatable trait-based ICS use result in better treatment adherence than our current approach? Um, it's a research question, uh, which is an answerable research question, but it's... Uh, I think it's it's very it's very likely. So we blame patients when, in fact, we're doling drugs out in a completely untargeted, random, somewhat wishy-washy way, and uh, patients are not making a firm commitment to drugs because uh, the guy down the road's never taken his brown inhaler, and nothing bad's ever happened to him. So I'm I'm not going to take mine. Yeah, I have. Um I have initiated a study concerning upper and lower airway treatment with steroids. And f- and we were looking for non-adherent patients. And actually, the patients with severe disease in their upper airways and, and often also asthma, they actually take their drug better off than the asthma patient as such. So that uh, initiation stopped. I mean, we couldn't find the patients. So I think the um, the combination disease, the upper and the lower airway uh, together, make the patient more adherent. Last, last uh, from you, Peter, concerning adherence. Yeah, I think there's one observation worth making in this space, and that is we've all seen people with severe attacks who we believe are non-adherent, who often admit to non-adherence to steroids. So they have uncontrolled T2 inflammation, frequent exacerbations, and adherence is a factor in that. And biologics have actually offered us a different approach to this. And that the, that approach is it's effective treatment of T2 inflammation, but you can give it in a directly observed way. So we there's a small number of people in this this grouping where I believe you can save lives by directly observed biologic therapy. And uh, my hope is that over time they'll turn around and become adherent to, to their regular treatment. It certainly allows us to engage people in care and it um, prevents the frequent and severe exacerbations that they're having. Thank you, Ian and Peter, for joining the episode concerning treatable traits and risk factors. We haven't been able to cover everything, but if you are curious to read more, you can find it in our book, The Asthmas, A Precision Medicine Approach to Treatable Traits, Diagnose and Management. In the next episode of Treatable Traits, we will be discussing assessment and different biomarkers. Thank you.